Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Lisa Califf is a partner at the entertainment law firm Donaldson & Califf, LLP. She was named by the Daily Journal as one of the top 100 women lawyers in 2014 and by Variety as one of the best and the brightest in 2011. She's an entertainment attorney whose primary focus is on representing independent filmmakers in all aspects of their movie making, including development, production, and distribution. Lisa is the co-author of three-time National Book Award winner, Clearance and Copyright, Everything You Need to Know for Film and Television with Michael Donaldson. And Michael C. Donaldson is an entertainment attorney who has been fighting for independent filmmakers for over 30 years. Michael successfully negotiated with insurance companies to offer fair use riders on the E&O insurance policies, which has allowed many films to be made under the fair use doctrine. Michael also co-authored with his law partner, Lisa Califf, The American Association's Legal Guide to Independent Filmmaking. And Michael and Lisa, we're so happy to have you joining us on the show today. Michael, I understand that you've written a brilliant chapter in Carol Dean's book on fair use. Yes, we did write a chapter for her book. We, we do that for actually a lot of books. <laughs> One chapter. Uh, and it's, and it's a, uh, an honor and a privilege to do so. Oh, that's great. Great. And now, is Lisa with us as well yet? Yeah, I'm here. Hi. Lisa. Lisa, thank you so much. So tell us a little bit about how things got started for you when you uh, began this journey. The journey, the book journey? Yes. Yeah, well, Michael began the book journey 30 years ago? Uh Yes, a while ago. A while ago. <laughs> Michael began the book journey. Um, and then, and since we've been working together, we did the third edition, which was a minor rewrite from the second edition. And then this fourth edition was really an underhaul of the entire book where Michael and I decided that it was time to really look at every single chapter and really update everything. And there was so much that had changed, so much that we had learned in the last, let's say, 10 years. Um, and we really felt the book needed a, a, a total overhaul, which is what we did, and to modernize it. So now it's an ebook. Now we have downloadable forms, which are really awesome because they're actually usable forms that filmmakers can use um, 
I actually just talked to a friend the other day. He said, I need a simple option agreement, but I can't afford your services. And I said, well, you should buy this book that we have just authored, and there's an option agreement in there. There's negotiating tips. It explains every provision so that you don't just have a form that you don't understand. Um, and then you can use it and manipulate it. So I don't know. I don't think there's a lot of other sources out there that actually do that. And um, and now it's available as an ebook with the downloadable forms and for fair use. We have clips that you can watch. And so it's a very, it's I don't know if it's an interactive book necessarily, but it's close to that. Oh, that's brilliant, Lisa. Uh, where where do we buy it? Is it on Amazon? It is on Amazon. Yes. Great. Uh, okay, well, I know that sounds like a very generous uh, gift to filmmakers with the uh, looking at looking at fair use online could really help them, and particularly when you're making a point and then you can show it immediately. Exactly. Very exciting. It really gives the filmmakers a conceptual understanding of the of this legal notion of fair use and say what is this what is this and you can explain it till your face turns blue but being able to see the clip um really helps that understanding process and just takes you know just takes that understanding to a new level great uh well uh, michael you've been quoted saying that fair use comes down to three questions and you make it sound really simple when most people say it's extremely complicated. So could you well, share with let's, us? Let's, 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 before we get to the questions, let's deal with that first, because actually um, you're absolutely right. Most people just throw their hands up and say, oh, you know, nobody understands this. But um, uh, leading academics across the country, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Mike Madison at uh, – at the Pennsylvania Law School, uh, Peter Yazzie, uh, uh, there's a professor at NYU, a professor at Berkeley, all of whom have written long articles that if you just look at one subset, you'll find patterns. And uh, it's because fair use covers everything from uh, uh, the garage door openers to film to it, it covers uh, programming. So what we did was just look at documentary films. And yes, for documentary films, if you just focus on them, fair use is very, very simple. So now okay. you want the three questions? Sure. I would love yeah. it. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So the three questions are, are you using somebody else's material to illustrate a point you're already making in your documentary? Pretty simple, yes or no. Uh, question two, you only use what's reasonably appropriate. Uh, and that's got a lot of elasticity in it, and that's good. Three is the connection between the point you're making and the material that you're using to illustrate it clear to the average viewer. And if you get a yes to all three questions, you land up in what we call the safe harbor. It's unassailable. There's no way anybody is going to um, be able to successfully argue that it's not fair use. There's still a lot of fair uses. You know, if the connection isn't all that clear, but, um, you know, when you explain it, it it's there. Um, if the uh, 
It has some little bit of wobble room in the length. That still might be fair use. It's just not that solid safe harbor where nobody can get at you. Okay, well, how how many seconds of footage do you recommend people use? <laughs> the, everybody wants a number. Yes. And what, what you, what you, <laughs> yes, of course you do, because that makes it easy. But sometimes uh, uh, longer makes it safer because it's clearer why you're using it. Um, it. It is totally connected to the point you're making. And whatever length it is that illustrates the point, you go past that, it's too much. So it really takes uh, a little practice in looking at this stuff. But I think uh, more than that, a little honesty. When is the point actually made? When is it illustrated? And, and beyond that, a lot of times we'll ask a filmmaker that, you know, this is on this clip, we noticed you ran it through and um, there was that joke on the end. Why, why, did, why did you keep the joke on the end? Oh, because that's really cool. <laughs> but, and, and it doesn't, it, it, really cool is not part of the analysis. It is, are you using something to illustrate a point? And once you get past that, so there's no magic number. Um, some things, uh, some, uh, like a photograph, you're going to use 100% of it. If it's uh, right. a song, you probably just want just enough to recognize the song, sort of whatever that iconic phrase is that lets you know that's the song they're talking about. So just, just enough to illustrate the point. And, you know, another thing I like to advise clients that I think is helpful is the more general the point is, typically the less material you can use. And the more specific it is, the more material you can use. So, for example, if a filmmaker is talking about, you know, they're saying, um, or an interview somebody saying, my favorite movie is The Breakfast Club. And, and then the filmmaker goes and shows a 45-second clip from The Breakfast Club. That's probably not going to be fair use. That's a pretty general statement. Maybe you can use the title card. Maybe, you know, you can five or ten seconds at most. But then if she says, my favorite scene from The Breakfast Club is when Molly Ringwald puts the lipstick in between her boobs and puts lipstick on. And so you can show that whole scene of her putting lipstick on. And then he was, and then what I liked even better was Judd Nelson's response to that and his, how he, how he reacted to that um, really made my day, you know, whatever, whatever the interview subject says. Then you can show that reaction. So the more specific comment there is on the underlying material, the more you're going to be able to use because you kind of have to to demonstrate that point to the audience. You know, I, I never heard you say that before. That's really? really cool. I've said it a lot of times. <laughs> I know. I should, have, I should have put my ear to the wall. No, that, that's a very cogent comment. Thanks. I didn't, I didn't See, we learn something every day from each other. <laughs> yes, thank, thank you for having us on. We, we should talk more often, right? <laughs> Great. That really is good. Now, Lisa, uh, in the fourth edition of Clearance and Copyrights, you cover how to hire a screenwriter. And uh, can you give us some tips on this? Because I, everybody wants to know how to do that. I hear that uh, question a lot. Yeah. So, you know, it's not difficult to hire a screenwriter, but what people do so often, um, and so many projects are created this way, and a lot of times it ends up being fine, 
But as they start working with friends and you do something without a writing in place, and what can happen is the friendship gets a little weaker as time goes on or the project's getting a little more challenging as the script is getting written and maybe you guys don't agree on everything anymore or maybe somebody wants to pick it up and you don't agree that it's the right person to finance the film or whatever the issue may be. Um, life happens and things change. And so the key is just to get something in writing um, with that writer that outlines what the relationship is. So if you're really just hiring a writer, like let's say you optioned a book and you're hiring a writer to write the script, it's a simple writer agreement, which also is in the book in downloadable form with negotiating tips and explanations. Um, if you're collaborating with your friends, you know, and really writing something together, maybe you as a producer came up with the idea and your friend is really putting pen to paper, memorialize that, even if it's not in a formal contract, but something in writing that you both agree to and sign um, really can save a lot of angst later. So it's really just about getting something, even something simple in writing that outlines what the relationship is and what's going to happen down the road. How are, how are, if the film is sold or if the script is sold, how are money going to be split between the two of you guys? Who has decision-making authority? Who... Um, if one person drops out, what happens to the script? Does one person get to move forward with it? You know, those kinds of just contingencies and, and life plans that you would do in any other relationship. Well, yes. you might not have any other relationship. plan <laughs> out in writing what's going to happen. But this is a relationship where you can do that. Oh, I know, because I, I always feel like being part of uh, this fiscal sponsorship program I hear all of these things where people start out working together and they're like true partners. They love working together and then something happens and they no longer want to be partners and how do you separate it? And uh, So it all go, starts with your agreements, your contracts. That's right. A lot of people av- uh, want to avoid it because they, they don't want to, upset the apple cart. They don't want mm-hmm. to uh, upset the writer. Oh, I'm afraid we won't agree on X. And, of course, that's exactly when you need to thrash <laughs> it out. It's never, it's it's like uh, dating, you know. It's never better than at the beginning. So, uh, you know, they all people talk about, well, marriage is work. It's the same thing. When you actually get into writing the script, it's work to keep that relationship on, uh, in balance. And uh, so if, if these issues, I'm um, um, dealing with one right now, best of friends, of course they didn't need an agreement. The other person was the, uh, is, is the godmother of my child. And, of course, when, they, when the disagreements start, the, the, the history, the friendship, makes those disagreements feel more like a betrayal and more personal, and it actually makes it worse. So it's much more important to have those written agreements when you're writing with somebody you have a pre-existing relationship with. Yes, absolutely. Well, Michael, um, I want you to tell us about how you cleared a Tom Anderson's documentary, Los Angeles Place Itself, because... That there was a lot of publicity about how no one thought it could be uh, put into DVD until you got involved and helped clear it. Yeah, and it's uh, it, it's it's funny because it was uh, it's 
far from the most difficult uh, uh, film that we've had by a long shot. It was a good example of the three questions. Tom Anderson, from start to finish, talked about how Los Angeles plays itself in movies. And he would mention specific films, and as he mentioned the films, clips of those films played over his voice. You never see his face. The entire film, what you, what you see is clips from all these movies, and they just keep rolling for 90 minutes, clips from other films. But each one, separately, individually, is a, an illustration of what Tom Anderson is talking about. It's a, it's a classic case of safe harbor fair use for each and every clip in that film. Wonderful. Wonderful. Then that's a good film for some of the documentary filmmakers who are getting stepping into this for the first time. It's a good film to look at to get some ideas, I guess. It's a, it's a very good uh, very good film to watch for for safe, very safe fair use. Uh, uh, another another one is Room Two Three Seven, where one third of the film uh, is clips from The Shining, but each clip illustrates exactly what the interview subject is talking about. Very safe. Um, and then, uh, you know, if you want to get into some uh, things that are a little more difficult, you, you look at Escape from Tomorrow, Welcome to New York. I mean, there's some films out there that. We're, we're, we're a little harder to clear, a little harder to to work on. But but these are are, are very safe, fair use cases. Good. That's that's most exciting because I loved that room two thirty seven. It was so well done, and um, and it brought out for those of us who are really Kubrick fans. It brought out a lot of the things that we might have missed because it was so detailed. So thank you for working on that. Very detailed. Very detailed. Yeah, I loved it. Uh, Well, Lisa, tell us about some of the difficult films you've helped with fair use. You know, it's interesting. I'm actually working. I've been thinking about that question because um, there's not a lot of films we work on that are difficult to the point where – you know, because there's a, it's not difficult because there's a lot of clips, or you know, as you know, as you can see from LA plays itself and films like that. Um, I think what's most difficult is when a client has a um, a film where they think a lot of what they use is fair use, and then I watch it and it's not, and then it's heartbreaking. You know, it's like, oh God, I have to have this conversation. And I'm working with a client right now who's doing a music documentary on a very famous singer, and so there's music throughout the film. And, you know, he had told me before I watched it, oh, yeah, I think, you know, there's a fair use argument for every single song in there. And in a sense, he's right. There is a fair use argument. But when we're looking at it at this stage in the game, we have a much more conservative approach. We don't want to make a case in court why this can be, why this material is fair use. We want to get insurance and distribution for you. So it's a different analysis. And this is a, the film that I'm working on now is a perfect example of Michael's three points. Does it illustrate the point? Are you using the amount reasonably appropriate to demonstrate that point? And is the connection clear? And the second two questions are not, don't you cannot say yes to, because he'll use a song 
for a minute or a minute and a half. You know, he'll mention this woman had a guitar player whose who guitar was, was amazing, and then they'll, they'll play 10 seconds of the guitar, and then they'll use it as underscore for another minute. And we can't do that. We can't, you know, it's no longer needed. You're not using, no, you're no longer using that song to express the point. You're now using it for entertainment value. And almost every single clip is like that. So that's the hardest type of work that I have to deal with, you know, going back to the client and telling him, breaking his heart, that he's <laughs> going to have to either license a lot of this or cut it um, is quite challenging because the filmmaker obviously fights back and they have a certain viewpoint on why all this is important. And it's not that he's wrong, but it's that we're doing we're looking at this from a more conservative angle and we have to get you insurance. And so, you know, we can't – it's just a different analysis. Exactly. Well, um, let me ask you a question that filmmakers sent in for us. It's, it says, if a famous song is playing in the background of a scene, this is on a documentary, is it, is it possible to claim fair use? And if so, for how many seconds? And um, why didn't you have a second word? If a what song is playing in the background? Oh, famous. Uh, yes, famous song. Famous song. So the, that answer has a couple of questions depending on how the music was captured. If it's purely incidental, the documentary filmmaker or even a feature filmmaker is shooting a scene in a bowling alley, and that bowling alley happens to be playing music in the background, and you capture it completely incidentally, and you don't edit the scene to the music, where it's just there, the filmmaker, as, as the director, didn't make any creative choices about the music, it probably is going to be fair use under our incidental test, that it's purely incidental. If the filmmaker had any creative decisions as to what music was being played or how long it was being played or how loud it was, um, then it wouldn't be fair use. But it's a little different than our, it's a lot different than our three-step test. This really is an incidental use, and is it, pure, is it purely incidental or not? It's kind of interesting. The, uh, uh, the, the incidental and fortuitous test is a uh, something that's kind of buried in a house report, but it's clearly um, a very solid part of the fair use doctrine. Uh, we just worked on a, a film by a very famous director doing a fictional film who had shot it outside of a music festival. And there was... Um, a lot of the music from the festival bled through when they were shooting their dialogue, and there was really no way to separate it out. Um, so we, we said it was fair use as long as uh, it was contained only as background where they were talking, not not used as in any kind of underscore, which is what... Uh, what Lisa was talking about earlier. Uh, using somebody else's stuff as underscore is never fair use in, in the U.S. All right. Well, let me ask you, uh, what about um, using news clips um, and claiming fair use? Or do you have to buy them? Or how? Well, how does that work? It's, it's, it's exactly the same. Uh, the test is exactly the same. It isn't, that test isn't just for feature films or just for photographs or just for sculptures. It's for anything you use in your film. And documentaries often uh, use uh, news footage. Now, it's, it's a little, um, you have to be 
uh, careful about that because there's a temptation um, from our experience, a rather universal temptation, to use the news footage to tell the story. Uh, and that's, that's not okay. You have to uh, tell the story and use the news footage to illustrate it. So if you don't make the point, uh, you, you can't get lazy and say, oh, well, I'll, I'll stick in the uh, ABC story that night that says so-and-so got killed. Uh, you, you have to make that point by some interviewee or uh, some way, and then if it's appropriate, you can illustrate it with news footage. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of the docs we work on use news footage, but it always has to be to illustrate or support a point you're already making. Okay. To illustrate or support a, a point you're already making. All right. Well, what about theatrical uh, things? Is it possible to film a theater play and claim fair use? Well, again, if, you're, if, if the uh, use of the play is to illustrate point you're already making, the answer would be yes, and we've had several of those. We had uh, a wonderful documentary about local theater that showed uh, how they put on a production locally with local talent, and it started with casting, so of course they were singing all kinds of songs, and it went all the way through, and of course it had opening night, so there was it, it ha you have to, if, you, if that's what your film is about, if you have to make a documentary what it's like for a local theater to put on a, uh, a musical, uh, you'd have to, you, 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 you can't tell that story without showing something of opening night. You just have to make sure that uh, you don't overdo it, that you're not substituting uh, footage for entertainment value, but rather to show what it's like when a bunch of Local people, non-professionals, decide to put on a major musical, and, and of course, there's other. We, we, we've got several others. Um, we did a wonderful thing for Michael Urie. He runs a contest in Texas. I forget the name of it, but uh, where uh, high school students read scenes from famous plays. Obviously, if you're going to make a documentary about this um, phenomenon in Texas, you got to. You have to show them reading the scenes. So there's a lot of circumstances where excerpts from plays, but the rules are exactly the same. Plays, music, film, broadcast television, cable shows, architecture, photos. The rule is, are you using it to illustrate a point you're making? You use what's reasonably appropriate, and is that connection clear? So you go back to the three uh, outlines, the three questions Absolutely. that you ask and for if you're, if you're, any you're, any format, really. Yes. Yep. As long as you're making a documentary, it'll hold true. Good. Um, well, Lisa, uh, let me ask you uh, what you recommend writers do to protect their uh, uh, copyright uh, infringement before they start pitching because uh, this is another question I'm asked so often. Yeah, So, and it's a good question, and the answer may be a little bit counterintuitive to some, but it's really the more you put together, the more work you put into your pitch, the more protected you're going to be. Um, 
you know, I was in the car with my son the other day, and I wrote him a note because he was sick, and I said, um, Diggy stayed home from school today because he was yesterday because he was sick, and he read it, and he goes, wow, my teacher would never let me write a sentence like that, and I said, why? Because there's no detail in it. He's like, you should have written. <laughs> he had the flu and was throwing up, and then so he couldn't come to school. And I was like, you're right. That's much better. That's a much better sentence. Good for <laughs> It was really funny. But it goes to that point where it's just, you know, my sentence would not be copyrightable. It's really an idea. His sentence may not be copyrightable yet either because it's still just a sentence. But, you know, you Copyright doesn't protect ideas. It protects the expression of that idea, and there has to be sufficient expression. So it's really the attention is in the detail. So the more detail there is, the more character development there is, the more if you're doing a TV series and you have um, a series outline, you have a story arc for every single episode, you're just the more the better because then you're protected. And if somebody does take it, um, inappropriately, then you have legal recourse. If you just have an idea about a reality show where people compete in um, marathons and, you know, they, they run around and they compete in whoever wins is the winner, that's not sufficient enough to protect and there may be ver uh, several of the people who are creating that same idea. So it's really just putting your creative expression into the idea and as much as possible. And then it's trusting who you're sending it to. To you know, people will always say, "Should I sign this NDA? I want them to sign an NDA. Um, should I sign the script submission agreement?" And you just have to be smart, and you have to trust the people you're you're sending your material to, and keep a good record of who it's been sent to and when, so that you have all that information in the event something does go wrong. Well, um, do you still recommend they register it? Is it in Washington or there's several places, the Screenwriters Guild? And yeah, it's a good idea to register a treatment with the Writers Guild, but all that does is give you a date. So you register it, you submit it online to the Writers Guild on March 9, 2015. Um, what that does, it doesn't give you copyright protection. You get copyright protection the minute you put pen to paper. Um, but what it does is gives you a date. So if somebody comes along with that same story later, let's say on March 9th, 2016, you can prove, no, I did this before you. Look, I registered this script with the WGA on March 9th. So that's a good idea. Registering with the Copyright Office, I don't recommend doing that until you have a final product because you don't want a bunch of things registering there because it can actually make chain of title kind of confusing if you do a copyright search and there's outlines and script treatments and drafts and that type of thing with the Copyright Office. But registering with the WGA is always a good idea. Okay, great. Well, tell me in the uh, e-book you have, how many, uh, can you tell us more of the uh, formats of the uh, agreements that you have that we can download? Yeah, I mean, there's really, it's anything related to to clearance of the film or to really, let's say, the chain of title even. So there's writer agreements, option agreements, appearance releases. Um, what else do we have in there? <laughs> there's like over 30 agreements, and I'm I'm blanking on what they are, but there's over 30 agreements in there. And they're all in the, uh, they're all downloadable from the uh, hardback also, the, the, the paperback book also. There's you have the leaks. Yeah, each contract has a, 
uh, email address under it that will automatically send back to you uh, a clean version of the contract that's downloadable. Oh, that's wonderful. That saves so much time and money. Um, let me just ask you something. When you do use uh, someone's footage, uh, do you credit them at the end of the film? Absolutely. First of all, you're not doing anything wrong, and it's only appropriate and fair and nice to do that. Secondly, credit in the European scheme of copyright law is part and parcel. Uh, there are several rights, or droits, as the French would say. There's droit de morale, and uh, there's a, um, the, the right uh, of attribution attribution, where uh, if you fail to give credit, it's just like copyright infringement. So it's very important that you uh, give credit, and um, you should credit the copyright holder in, in, in uh, Europe, and it's nice, so I, we, we recommend you do it here too, uh, the director, and in some countries the producer, but you, once you get the director and the copyright holder up, you pretty well home everywhere in the world. Oh, good. All right. Um, well, Lisa, um, tell me, I'm wondering about what people might uh, put in their budget for fair use. Is there any uh, ballpark figure, or do they need to call and get have a consultation and get an idea? Yeah, I mean it's pretty it's pretty straightforward our process because we've done it so many times. Um, but basically, I guess I can give all of your listeners the information because we give it to any, anybody who calls on the phone. But um, we bill hourly for this type of work, so our hourly rate gets charged, and we charge a five thousand dollar retainer for feature length films. Um, and you know the process is really straightforward. They send us a copy of the film. They send us a copy of the log that has a list of every item they want us to look at with the description and the time code in and out. We go through, we watch the film, and we go through it again, and we look at every single clip, and then we have a conversation with the filmmaker about what's, what's fair use, what's not, what could be changed, what, what, how we could help make the fair use, strong, the fair use argument stronger. Um, and then it's really a collaborative process from there on out between you know, the lead lawyer who's working on the film and the filmmaker getting the film to a place where everything is either um, licensed or falls squarely within the parameters of fair use. And then we write an opinion letter, and that opinion letter is used to go to your, to send to your E&O insurance provider, and then your E&O insurance will cover the unlicensed material in your film. If you don't have that letter, you can still get an E&O policy, but it won't cover the uh, it won't cover any of the unlicensed material that's in your film. Oh, and and that you really need to get on on the air, don't you? Yeah, you do. I mean, I would say I think internationally sometimes you can get away without having an E&O policy if it's a very small release with a small distributor, but um, whenever you have any type of release, the distributor or studio will always require an E&O policy. Right. Well, uh, most people think of only coming to you for the fair use, but both of you are full-fledged film attorneys, right? And you take projects and help with the uh, with everything that they need as far as entertainment attorneys, right? 
Oh, yeah. I laugh sometimes because I've been doing this for 40 years, and uh, the, um, the the notoriety of the fair use work and the clearance work sort, sort of uh, overshadowed all the work on financing and distribution and audits, uh, all the production legal work that been doing for years and years and years and years and years. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and we do a lot of, a lot of, in fact, we have one of our lawyers who's dedicated uh, pretty exclusively to production legal work. Uh, she used to be with ICM. She's just great on that stuff. And, um, so she, we have her insulated from the, the, the clearance work, but we all we all do a little production legal from time to time. Yeah, I like to tell people that we help with all stages of filmmaking, um, from development and financing through production and distribution. But we don't do the hardest things, which are raise money and sell films. So <laughs> we stay away from those. We'll do the legal work attendant to those, but we don't do those things that are we leave to much more capable agents do. Right. Right. Oh, that's so good. Well, um, Michael, tell us some of the pitfalls that filmmakers fall into during production. Well, the biggest pitfall is not is not to get an attorney aboard early. You don't have to use the attorney day in and day out, uh, but we find it enormously helpful to filmmakers. To come in early for a consultation, they get the book, they have all the contracts, but we can talk about the application of the contracts to their particular situation, uh, and then we usually don't see them again until uh, it's time to clear the film. Uh, it also gets their head around, uh, at the beginning of production, they know pretty well what they're going to be getting into, and, and we uh, we talk to them about that. The um, it it really saves a lot of money to bring a lawyer in early, have a consultation, make a plan, and then uh, the filmmaker can execute the plan. Uh, the big bills run up when somebody has saved the money of not going to an attorney and. You know, things are kind of a mess. Um, maybe they don't have agreements and there's a dispute. Maybe they've made a lot of mis- I had a film where they um, they just uh, they cleared everything but five items. Uh, they they weren't able to clear them and they brought them in for fair use. It was a heartbreaker. The five items they brought in were the only items that were not fair use. It was a heartbreaker. Oh gosh. I mean, and and. If they had just had a consultation early, they would have known not to license those things, save their money for these things they couldn't afford later because they'd already used up all their money licensing things they didn't have to. It's a heartbreaker. Right. So good uh, early legal advice is one major uh, yeah, asset for filmmakers. Mm. And then, of course, the I other guess it's thing. sort of. It's it's like going on a road trip. If you don't know where you're going, you're going to take the wrong road on occasion. Right, and that's also you know another reason why this, these books that we have are so important because somebody sometimes people can't afford. You know, they're doing a twenty five thousand dollar film, and 
all their friends are acting in it, and, you know, they really don't have the resources to see a lawyer, but that's why we have these books, because they really are. If somebody reads, if they read both of them, the ABA Guide to um, Legal Guide to Independent Filmmaking and Clearance and Copyright, they would be much better off than most producers, and even a lot of producers who've already done a film. Because a lot, of, you know, producers don't know everything, even though they pretend like they do. Right. Well, uh, I, we run a lot of Indiegogo campaigns here, um, and so I would really appreciate if uh, either one of you or both of you could explain the rule for music in campaign videos online or tips on music clearance for that right. type of a product. It's a good question, you know, and, and it goes back to the fundamental um what what fundamentally copyright infringement is, and copyright infringement is the act of copying without permission, um, and that does unless it falls under fair use, which is a defense. So if you're making that copy without permission, regardless of whether it's being used for commercial purposes or you're making money off of it, that's copyright infringement. So when people put their Indiegogo campaigns and they have music in it that's unlicensed and clips in it that are unlicensed that is going to be an infringement. And if the copyright holder finds out about it, and if they're upset about it enough that they think it's worth filing a claim or sending a cease and desist letter, they can, and they can win. So a lot of people do it, and they get away with it. The risk is relatively low most often, but it is illegal. So I like to I like to put it in very black and white terms because it really is a black and white issue. Um, the most problems we see in our office are from people who put up trailers with unlicensed material in it, and we don't vet them for fair use. And they put it up before the um, before our our clearance review is done, so they don't have E and O insurance in place, and they get a cease and desist letter from the copyright holder. And that can pose a problem, you know, for if you really need the material, you're not gonna you're not gonna be able to get insurance on it unless you settle with that person. So unless you settle you pay a license fee or if they agree to give you a license without a fee, you know, whatever it may be, but you're gonna have to deal with that person down the road if you want to use that material. So um so it's kind of a long answer to your question, but it's just it's just as important for people to understand that is copyright infringement. And the fact that a lot of people don't get caught doesn't change the law. It just means that the risk is relatively low. You know, it's like jaywalking. Right. But I've heard some horror stories, at least about people who were sued for a product uh, for uh, copyright infringement by the musicians. And um, even though it gets to court and the person wins that it was fair use, they may have spent forty or fifty thousand to to uh, for the lawsuit. So they have right. to. Or they really more than that. I mean, forty or fifty thousand oh, dollars no. in litigation is actually chump change. Um, oh no! You know, once you once you have a claim filed, and unless it gets dismissed very 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 early, you know. So it, um, you're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees. Oh my! Gosh. So it is, you know, it's something that a filmmaker should think about carefully. You know, and I think that that's the exception, not the rule. You know, it doesn't happen every day that there's litigation over this stuff. Um, what happens most, I think, what happens probably most of the time is nobody gets caught. 
or the person doesn't get caught. And what happens some of the time is there's a cease and desist letter and you take it down and it's fine. The other thing that happens, you know, we have this issue with the um, International Olympic Committee. A client used some IOC footage in their trailer and the IOC came back and said, you're using this without permission, but don't worry about it. Just pay us $60,000 and it'll be fine. <laughs> and the client ignored it. They were like, oh, whatever, we're not going to do that. We took, we, take it, we took it down, but we're not going to pay. And then a month later, the IOC sent another letter saying, well, now that you haven't paid, you now owe us $75,000. And they didn't let up. You know, it became a pretty big issue. So there are certain copyright holders that are more protective than others. And so it's just important if, if a filmmaker is putting stuff up online that they haven't licensed, that they understand the risks attendant to doing that. Absolutely. All right. Well, both of you have, are so brilliant in, in this area and in uh, just in all of the legal work that you do. We really appreciate the services you give to filmmakers. I have compliments in, about both of you all the time from filmmakers. Well, thank you. So, oh, wow. That's very generous. Thank yeah. you for that. Oh, they love you, and they you are the go-to place for fair use. So that's why I want to make sure everyone knows you're also full-fledged attorney services for all of your production <laughs> thank needs. Thank you, thank you. So um, any closing comments either one would like to make, please do. Well, just that, uh, uh, A, it's, thank you so much for having us, and, and it's a pleasure being here. And, and uh, what we... What we always strive for and, and what we're hoping this brief time with you does is to uh, empower filmmakers to tell their stories, let them know that there are resources out there that are inexpensive and yet accurate and helpful, uh, not just clearance and copyright book, but there's others also, and that they mustn't be afraid to, to contact an attorney early get that early advice, and then their, their freedom to tell their story, their way, is so much greater than most people think. And you've mentioned a couple films here that should give hope and encouragement to anybody who's worried about the legalities. They should look at Escape from Tomorrow, which was surreptitiously shot at Disney World, many people in the background, lots of copyrighted material, trademarks, uh, in addition to the fact uh, they didn't have permission to be there to make the film in the first place. We got insurance for that. Uh, and it wasn't the hardest <clears throat> It wasn't the hardest film we ever did. It was the longest opinion letter we ever wrote because there were so many different factors involved. Mm -hmm. But filmmakers have a right, almost a duty, especially documentary filmmakers, to tell their story in the richest, most powerful way, and that is going to demand the use of copyright material because when you make a, a film that really has a strong message, there's going to be somebody who doesn't want you to tell it, and they'll try and block you. That's why we have fair use. Well said. Thank I you. Can Thank you very much. <laughs> Good. All right. Well, thank you both very much for uh, spending this time with us, and we sincerely appreciate it. And we know that uh, – get, let me just give you uh, – you give me the uh, website again, Lisa, and where they can buy the book. Is it on Amazon? Yes, they can buy it on Amazon.com, um, and it's called Clearance and Copyright. It's the fourth edition 
by the both of us, Michael Donaldson and Lisa Callis. Great. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you so much for having us. It was a pleasure. Okay. Yes. Pleasure is mine. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye. Lisa, Michael, yes, thank you very much. Be well, everyone. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N, dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to the Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.